my mindset essentially was that um, I felt like a small fish in a big pond at RMA, which isn't necessarily passing a judgment. It's just the way it is when you're working for a large institution like that. It's a big pond. It's a big pond. And to their credit, it's a big pond. Um, and so I felt like I was young enough at that point where if I was going to ever take a risk, uh, you know, I, I didn't feel I probably couldn't have done it the day after I, uh, you know, finished fellowship. Um, or I certainly think it's very hard to do it uh, the day after you finish fellowship. There are those who do it and I give them credit too. Um, but I felt like having gotten my feet under me yet for a couple of years, um, if I if I stayed for another few years, it probably would have been that much harder to 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 leave. How many ways are there to start an REI practice? How many ways are there to start a fertility business? I explore that today with my guest, Dr. Joshua Klein, because a lot of younger REIs think about, well, do I have to go partner with somebody? Do I get a salary route at an academic center? Do I go off on my own and I risk everything because I've got this stupid medical school debt and I went to some very expensive undergraduate college and maybe my parents were wealthy enough to help me, but maybe they weren't. And I've got that debt too. Some of you are coming out with a lot of debt. And, and so starting a venture, your own entrepreneurial venture can seem pretty daunting. And so our guest today, Dr. Klein talks about another possibility is finding other people with financial backing um, and, and starting your own endeavor is a piece of that. You won't be a, necessarily be a majority owner and own everything, but that's one way to do it. So we talk about that. We talk about the massive learning curve that you're going to go on. If you want to learn more about the business of fertility, whether you own it or not, that it's drinking from a fire hose. So Dr. Klein talks about uh, some of the things that he picked up and the challenges of managing people, a vision for uh, an REI practice uh, to, to start the whole thing of looking at fertility preservation is something that was underserved in the market. And uh, what Dr. Klein thinks is the right demographic or the more appropriate demographics for fertility preservation and why he saw that as a need in the marketplace and other hard lessons learned like cost per lead, cost per new patient acquisition. Um, and so we both, uh, we, we, we talk about those things and Dr. Klein closes with thoughts of uh, how younger docs might approach making that choice. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. Dr. Klein originally was a, he, he completed his fellowship at Columbia and then he was an associate physician at RMA of New York and now he is a partner at Extend Fertility, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with him. Josh, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you so much for having me, Griffin. I am interested in the topic for today because we have had people to talk about egg freezing on in the past, and uh, but I'm interesting because your group, Extend Fertility, was one of the first to make a brand around, yes, you're a comprehensive IVF practice, but you did have a special focus in fertility preservation early on. And so I want to spend some time talking about that. Maybe we get to the business second, but at, where were you in your career when you started to feel like uh, you know, fertility preservation was something that was clinically viable because 
you know, that wasn't the case 20 years ago. Um, right. Maybe the people just getting on board now are late. So when was it for you? Yeah, um, that's a question that that I thought a lot about um, when we first were putting this place together. Um, I came out of training in 2012. Um, so I finished my fellowship at Columbia in 2012 and, and took my first job at Art of New York, which is, as uh, many listeners probably know, it's um, affiliated with Mount Sinai. It's one of the big uh, academically affiliated programs in New York City. Um, and part of it is just history because um, ASRM, well, I should say the studies that demonstrated that egg freezing could be done through vitrification um, relatively reliably and reproducibly and with relatively good success rates really came out in the late 2000s going into the early 2010, 2011, uh, that sort of uh, uh, timeframe. And it actually was at the end of 2012, technically published, I believe, in January of 2013, when ASRM sort of put their uh, guideline out that said that egg freezing can be offered as a method of fertility preservation without the rubric of an IRB, without an experimental protocol. Um, there was a lot of buzz around that. That didn't mean that ASRM was you know, endorsing egg freezing as something that everybody should be doing. Um, but at the very least, it wasn't considered an experimental uh, modality anymore. And so um, that, that was 2012, 2013, which was literally the first year I was out in practice and kind of getting my feet under me. Um, and you know, sitting in, in, in an office in New York City in Manhattan, with uh, the culture around us, you know, certainly being the case that most women are not uh, getting getting pregnant and building their families in their 20s. People are, are, are sort of young if they're getting pregnant in their 30s. Um, it felt like, to me, um, egg freezing is something that might be super valuable to like a lot of women, not just a select few, but to like sort of in some way, the average educated professional 30-something-year-old Manhattanite who isn't, you know, uh, hasn't partnered up yet or isn't ready to settle down yet is still building their career and, and, and not at that stage of, of their uh, personal or professional life where they're ready to have kids. And so, you know, at that time, egg freezing was still very small. It was still new. Most people didn't know about it and, and, and just people weren't accessing it for one reason or another. And so even at a big program like RMA, they were doing, I think, something like, uh, 120 egg freezing cycles a year, which means, you know, maybe 10 a month in the entire practice. So I was seeing a small handful of patients of uh, uh, who are interested in egg freezing. And it just felt like it didn't match the demographics of what it should. Um, so at some point, that kind of light bulb went off that there's a disconnect between the number of like single professional educated women who might want to do this and then people are actually doing it. And then, of course, the question became like, what's the missing link here? How come how come it's it's a mismatch? And so the things that I thought about and that kind of got parlayed into building extent fertility were people don't know about it. So uh, there was a lack of proactive education about fertility preservation. You know, IVF clinics were doing a really good job of, of keeping busy, helping people build their families, people who are struggling to get pregnant with IVF. And so egg freezing was kind of not the center of their attention. Um, so that's one was education and awareness. Uh, two was sort of, I think, the environment. I think egg freezing was never really thought of as like an important piece of an IVF clinic. And so I always used to say that like you could pick out the egg freezers in the waiting room because, you know, they were the ones sitting by themselves, younger, kind of looking awkward when most of the infertility IVF waiting room is, is couples who, um, you know, kind of 
sad and 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 tortured a little bit and the egg freezers are are they don't have a problem they just are are wanting to be proactive about planning their 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 reproductive life um and then third is cost because egg freezing was tended to be priced as sort of like the IVF pricing but a tiny notch less even though technically it's a lot less work for the lab to do so so it kind of was overpriced i think at that time and so those principles were the ones that we tried to harness when we created a extemporality as a center that focused on egg freezing back in 2015-2016 um to kind of build a uh, a brand and a culture around the idea of making egg freezing and fertility preservation more understandable, more accessible, um making the experience a little bit less unpleasant especially if it's a sort of a purpose-built environment and then bringing the price point down in a way that that would still allow us to have a viable business model. So um that's kind of the the threads that went into it. So you saw the market, you saw the 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 oh, the the flaw in the market when it came to to pricing and availability. What about demographics because that is a point of uh, maybe contention but that I I just I don't I don't hear a lot of consensus about is what is the ideal demographic and there are both clinicians and egg freezers that say the younger the better and uh it 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 should be something that you know 22 year olds parents gift them for graduating college i hear both clinicians and egg freezers say that i also hear clinicians and egg freezers say that no way like it's a very narrow demographic and it's it's for 38 39 year olds maybe who are right right just before the window of 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 real dor risk i suppose and so where how how do you how do you come to what you think the the proper demographic is yeah it's a that's a great question because it is something that i think gets debated hotly and and we have patients every day that say you know can i wait a year can i wait two years and sometimes it gets a little silly you know how can can i wait six months it's like a negotiation um but um I think what what has to be recognized to sort of think through that uh intelligently is that it's inarguable that in general if someone does egg freezing younger they're going to get a more valuable um uh, end product meaning younger women will get or any particular woman if she does it younger will probably get more eggs and more healthy eggs than that same woman who in an alternative un- universe does it older so <clears throat> by that rationale it's uh, which is oversimplified as I'll as I'll explain um everybody should do it like you just said at 22 like it should be a universal thing the younger the better and so uh, there's not much to argue about but the reality is that even even at a place like extend where we try to keep it on the more affordable side um it is a luxury good meaning between the cost of 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 the service and the cost of the medications and then the cost of storage it's it's a it's a it's a significant amount of money um it's not the easiest process we try to make it as easy as possible but it's not the easiest process it does take a lot of wherewithal to kind of get through it and so um it's not you know if if it if it really was something that you can get come into the doctor's office you know uh get get a procedure done for 10 minutes and it costs $100 i probably would be singing that same song of everybody should just do it when they're 22 because kind of why not and it could could really be an important thing in your life but but it's a lot different than that and so what i what i want to uh, point out is that every year that passes that you don't do it is another year that you might not end up having to do it right because if you're 25 and thinking about doing it but you wait and then by 28 
you actually got married and then started your family naturally, then you won that gamble, right? Because you, you, you didn't have to do it. And now you may never have to do it because you're already getting, getting your family started naturally. And so you kind of dodge that bullet and you save the money and you save the, 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 the anxiety and the uh, investment of time, energy and resources to do it. And so in, in a certain way, waiting to do it longer makes sense because the younger you are, the more likely you're going to end up starting your family in an easier way than egg freezing um, if you just give it some time. And that's why I don't think that the 22-year-olds should be, unless there's a special situation, which I'll actually get to also in a moment. But for most average healthy women, 22 doesn't make sense because you can afford to wait. Because if you do it when you're in your late 20s or early 30s, you'll still get a very good end product. And there's a there's a large percentage of women who will, in fact, majority of women who are thinking about it at 22, by the time they get to 30, they won't need it anymore. Um, so I think we're overselling it if we're selling it to 22 year olds. Um, so that's that's something I think that 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 isn't always articulated clearly. Um, but that's a reason not to do it too early, even though it's true, if you do it at 22 or do it at 30, you'll get more out of it at 22. But you might not need to do it at 30. And so, so a lot of times it makes sense to wait to sort of let your life unfold. And then but then you got to be careful not to let, let that slippery slope slip. Right. So if you do it at 39, I certainly would think that that's a mistake because that's already you're, you're sort of reacting when egg freezing works best as a proactive maneuver. Right. If you're freezing eggs that are mostly not healthy already, which is when you're getting close to 40, that's the reality. It might work, but it's not certainly a great situation. Um, the um, the other thing. Oh, the other thing I wanted to emphasize is the fact that age is only half the story, which is to say age is the best marker of egg quality. But there's another issue, which is egg quantity, right? How many eggs a woman has. And we've learned over the last 10, 20 years, especially through how AMH testing has become very common and actually as simple of a test as it is, it's been a very important development, I think, in the, in the last uh, 10, 20 years of fertility uh, management and treatment. Because if you're uh, a 28-year-old with a very low AMH, which there are a lot of healthy 28-year-olds that are going to have a low AMH, it's something that's very highly individually variable, it will probably make a lot more sense to thinking about freezing eggs at that point. If you're a 28 year old with a very great high AMH, you could say, okay, I wait a year and, and that's not such a terrible decision. So um, I think that's another thing that's often overlooked is it's not only about age, it's another dimension when it comes to egg freezing, which is your egg supply, your ovarian reserve and AMH testing is so easy to get. It's almost a shame that, you know, I, I believe that, that uh, OBGYN should just be doing it routinely. They do a lot of other health maintenance stuff that May or may not be helpful, and this is something that could be really useful. And I think slowly they are doing it more and more. Um, but I think that's another dimension of the of the calculus that needs to be recognized, and that can help the a woman who's trying to strategize to uh, make that kind of decision is really useful to have. I just I don't think that this question is gonna go away because it doesn't seem that the it doesn't seem that we have hit the plateau for age of first birth in this country. So, you know, I think everybody remembers the headlines from earlier this year. It hit uh, the first average birth uh, for women in the U.S. The median age hit 30. Uh, and if my records are right from the CDC, it was even just in 2014, it was a little over 26 years old. Yeah. So yeah. it it went it 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 went up one and a half years from just shy of 25 in 2000 to 
26 and less than 26 and a half in 2014. And then in 2022, it's 30. So uh, I suck at math, but I think most of the people listening can uh, see the exponential growth. So I just, I don't think that this is going away. What do you see in the marketplace? Uh, Do you see, you know, peaks and valleys are, um, you know, what I wondered is when you started in 2015 in, in New York is, is like, okay, are we going to see this in Charlotte in three years? And then in Cleveland, two years after that. And so talk to us about what you're seeing. Um, well, I think you're right. First of all, that, that, that this is still a, a moving target and the market is still maturing. Um, the, it's interesting because there were some uh, well-publicized uh, predictions that were made 2014, let's say, I think, um, about what the expected size of the egg freezing market would be. And uh, there's one quote that's out in the in the media that said something like 85,000 or 100,000 cycles of egg freezing by 2020. The truth is it hasn't grown that, that um, um, explosively. And you could think about lots of different reasons why that might be the case. But I, I think that egg freezing clearly has grown a lot. Um, I do think it's going to continue to grow. I actually think that some of the um, kind of spinoff growth that we're seeing and that others probably are seeing as well is more and more married couples or not just married, but I guess more and more couples are coming in to proactively plan their families, even as couples when they're not ready to have their children yet. Um, And also, and this gets a little hazy where the line gets drawn between fertility treatment and fertility preservation. And sometimes it's an issue with, you know, insurance coverage and so forth, but lots of patients who, you know, come in in their late thirties for fertility treatment, they do IVF and they get an embryo and they say, well, wait a minute, we always wanted two kids and we struggled to even get one good embryo. So what we want to do is we want to do another stimulation cycle to at least get one more before we go ahead and use this one. And that happens all the time these days that people are are trying to bank at least you know not bank uh, an inventory of embryos uh, um, in some unreasonable way but to put away one or two good embryos for the second baby if they're having their first baby in their late 30s or or at 40 which is actually very logical and so um, the uh, I think the fertility preservation concept is is kind of uh, growing and branching out into other in, in other ways um, that in some way are still evolving. By the way, another, uh, I think, um, uh, idea that will come to fruition, but I don't think it's happened yet, is I've had a handful of patients who have read about and are interested in doing proactive couples who are interested in making embryos for PGTP, which is the polygenic testing, you know, looking at, uh, particularly if let's say uh, a couple comes in and the guy says, you know, my, my, uh, my dad has terrible uh, Parkinson's disease. And um, I know there's no gene for Parkinson's disease that I can screen for, but it just scares me to death that that's something that that uh, I might have a kid and uh, it's going to be at high risk for. And so what I want to do is do these kind of polygenic testing, you know, involving multiple genes to say which embryos have a higher or lower risk for developing, whether it's Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or diabetes or heart disease and things like that. Um, so that's, that's something that's not common yet, but I think the, that, that it's coming, um, as this sort of field evolves into a lot of this proactive planning, your family type of, uh, and then genetics is obviously evolving and improving as well. So you made a brand that's, I think is, is pretty well positioned for that. I, I, 
the extend fertility really works for both sides of, of fertility preservation and fertility treatment. It, it, because it's the extension, it is very intentional. And so you, uh, you, you started this in, in 2015 is when the, was when the, the business started. Right. So, um, and you complete fellowship at Columbia in 2012, you go work for RMA for three years. This is the point that a lot of the listeners are at. They're either uh, just leaving fellowship or they're associate docs and they're thinking about the next step. You were at a place where you're at a great practice. You could pursue partnership there um, or you could go off and, and do something risky. What, like, how did your decisions, when did it start to appear in your mind of, I could go off and do a venture. Like how, how did that originate? That's a great question. Um, so yeah, I mean, without getting, I guess, too personal, uh, I have a lot of gratitude towards my years at RMA. I learned a lot and, and uh, it's a good place. Um, I think that um, for me, um, I think that it, well, it was a hard decision. Let me just say that much. Um, the truth is that when I, started speaking to um, one of my associates, my business partners, who um, was interested in, in, in investing money, putting together investors to, to, to build out Extend Fertility. Um, my original expectation is that I would sort of be some kind of consultant on the project and, and, uh, um, and not actually do it myself. Um, but as we kind of uh, continued those conversations and I got more enthusiastic and excited about the idea and he got more enthusiastic about me actually getting in it. It took some time uh, to warm to the idea, but I, I, I kind of got more excited about, about doing it myself. Um, but it's scary, you know, especially first job out of training. And I was fortunate to have, you know, good training at, 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 at uh, large academic centers at Ivy, Ivy League institutions. And so I hadn't kind of been really out in the business world before, before then. Um, but I think that my mindset essentially was that, um, I felt like a small fish in a big pond at RMA, which isn't necessarily passing a judgment. It's just the way it is when you're working for a large institution like that. It's a big pond. It's a big pond. And to their credit, it's a big pond. Um, and so I felt like I was young enough at that point where if I was going to ever take a risk, uh, you know, I, I didn't feel I probably couldn't have done it the day after I uh, you know, finished fellowship. Um, or I certainly think it's very hard to do it uh, the day after you finish fellowship. There are those who do it. And I, Give them credit too, um, but I felt like having gotten my feet under me yet for a couple of years. Um, if I if I stayed for another few years, it probably would have been that much harder to 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 leave. Um, probably my income presumably would would rise slowly, and so that you know the better you're doing, the more they make it attractive to stay. And so um, you know when you're young, you just getting started. It's a little easier because you're not giving up so much, um, and so. I don't know. I, I, I guess my, my thought process was basically, I felt like this was a good idea. And at the end of the day, I felt like um, before I started my, before I finished fellowship, before I started my professional career, I felt like uh, it, I questioned, like everybody has self-doubt. I knew I was a bright kid, but like, it's hard to see yourself doing what your, what your teachers and mentors and superiors are doing. Like, could I really handle it? What, what, when stuff gets, you know, kind of uh, difficult when there's an unhappy patient and how do you uh, how do you deal with that? Or when you have some issue with like an inspection and there's regulatory stuff and hiring and firing and all that, it's very intimidating as a young 
you know, kind of a, a, a medical trainee. Um, but I think that what I started to realize was that the hard stuff is still hard when you get older and everybody does their best to handle it. And so, and everybody's just human. I think that's what I, what I really kind of, it, 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 it became clear to me that everybody's doing this, just doing their best and, and no one knows all the answers in advance and kind of every day brings another challenge with it. But um, if, if, if uh, you know, if the other guy can handle it, probably so can you, and you just have to kind of have that courage and have that confidence in yourself. And so um, that was what I think allowed me to, to take that leap is sort of getting out in the world, seeing, seeing um, that nothing's perfect, even behind the curtain, every practice, every lab has its own questions and issues and, you know, uncertainties and, and uh, every practice has its own um, you know, issues that come up and like, that's life. And, and uh, you kind of do your best to keep, keep people happy and to do, to keep your patients happy and go home, you know, doing the right thing and hopefully sleeping well at night. And, um, you know, so it, it kind of lost that in that side of the intimidation. And then I felt like, you know what, I'm going to take the leap. And by the way, if you take the leap and you kind of just fall on the floor, so you still have your training and you, you're kind of embarrassed probably, but you can get up and go get a job. And so, you know, I felt like it's, it's not, if you, if you let that opportunity go when you're a young doc, it, it may not come back to you, but if you take it and, and, and you swing and miss, well, no one's going to fault you for taking the swing, I think. And, and, uh, and your career isn't ruined just because you, you tried something that didn't work. So, um, and if you fall flat on your face and you're humble and self-aware enough, it will make you a better partner somewhere else. It absolutely will. As long as you are, and those are two big, those are two big conditions. Not everybody is humble and self-aware, but yeah. it, uh, but if you are falling flat on your face can give, can, can make you that much more valuable as a, as a partner somewhere else as if the case. And then, you know, if, if you are successful, then that's, then you have you've done it long before most other people have. So, in your view, what's harder, owning a business or residency? <laughs> Apples and oranges, I guess. I mean, I think I think well, the obvious answer: residency is harder um, because it's physically so demanding, and then you also have to kind of keep your mind sharp while you're literally exhausted. To be clear, and for the record, I don't. I'm a, I'm a very small part owner of Extend, but I wouldn't call myself the owner of Extend because there's a lot of investor money that went into building this place out. And that, and by the way, to, for for the for the for the record, for the for the listenership here also. So I'm I'm talking like a big shot. Oh yeah, I'm gonna gonna you know go off my own and start something new. And I, I in some ways that's true, but I I wasn't in a position to put up tons of my own capital because I didn't have it. And so I did uh, start off with investor money. And I guess I had to earn their their respect and their confidence to get that investor money. But um, <coughs> you know, I didn't I didn't find five million dollars in my own pocket to, to, to put down and, and build out a lab and build out a program. Um, so I didn't put have that much courage or I guess uh, wherewithal at that point. But having said that, um, there's no doubt that running a program is hard. Um, and, and I think that the reason that that's true is because literally you feel stressed and responsible for like a thousand different things that can come up and every day something does come up. Um, a lot of it's the people, the people is the hardest thing, um, you know, the, the, say hiring and firing. And that's, that's the most blatant example, but, you know, uh, people who are thinking of leaving and people are unhappy for X or Y or Z and people who uh, don't get along with each other. And they're both important pieces of your, of your, of your, of your team. And you gotta help them get along somehow. And, you know, the day-to-day -day, uh, team 
building team uh, preserving is 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 complicated, and there's no playbook, and you just got to do your best to sort of read people's um, emotions and and feelings and instincts, and that's obviously not easy. Um, also, the fact that you feel responsible for everything, and maybe I—that's I, one of the things I have to continue to mature to and let go. But like a, a silly little example, there was a someone who dropped off a, a gift bag for a patient who had a retrieval uh, was it yesterday morning or two days ago, um, and somehow that gift bag disappeared, and it never got to the patient in their post-op. It was supposed to be like some snack. It was nothing. It was like some snacks and some—I don't know what—maybe uh, uh, a, a heating pad or something. And the person who dropped it off was obviously not happy because the, the patient uh, was 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 heard about it and they were expecting it and I don't even know what happened. Somehow it, it never it never never made the way. And so then I'm was was approached by the person who dropped it off because of course like you know I'm kind of considered responsible for everything and like where can we figure it out? And then I'm asking you know, at the security cameras and the security camera wasn't focused or wasn't working. And then I'm asking in the lab and. It's just like this is the last thing I want to be, you know, working on is finding the 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 the, the snack bag. But <laughs> like, who else am I gonna, you know? Like, I, I did get help and and uh, and still not figured out. But the point is, like, from the littlest to the biggest things, you worry about it because you feel responsible for everything that happens under under the four walls or under the roof. And so that's that's not an easy way to live. And my hair is a lot grayer than it was five years ago. That's for sure. But well, good news, Josh. That means you're not a sociopath. So you, it's <laughs> it, and it's like it you. To be a business owner is one. I, I, it's so hard, and and I'm not running a medical practice, but just run, you know, even running a client services run. It is so hard for the reasons that you describe: balancing delivery and sales, and and the, the people, the, the to 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 do all of those things, and uh, and you have to be so, uh, you have to be receptive to people. Uh, you have to listen. And then there are other times where you have to forge ahead and say, okay, we're moving on. And, and so you have to be agreeable enough to listen, to not be a sociopath and, and, or a narcissist. And, but also not so agreeable that you're just, oh, okay. Yeah. I guess, I guess that is too much work for you, for you. All right. Yeah. I guess, I guess the patient doesn't really need that. Uh, you know, it's you. You have to, you have to walk a line that can be yeah. pretty heavy. It, it's funny the way you frame that because I also think, uh, sort of tangentially, but it connects to, in my opinion, how to be a doctor with a good manner in terms of how you manage patients and patient make patient recommendations. Um, in the sense that, especially with infertility, where um, most of our patients are, you know, relatively young, relatively educated, um, lots of them are doing lots of Google research, and they're on the message boards, and they're talking to their friends and their and their sisters and whoever else that that their doctor said you have to do this, or that doctor said that never should be doing done like that, or uh, Google, you know, uh, says X, Y, and Z. Um, so I think it's a really hard balance to to strike. You always want to be open to hearing your patients' feedback or thoughts or questions or suggestions. If you're perceived as as dismissive of their input, that's going to be the kiss of death. Patients hate that. But at the same time, and this is something that I've also learned uh, and continue to learn, is that 
it's not healthy to just say, uh, oh, you read about that. You want to try that or your friend did this. So sure, we'll do that. Like, I think you not only is it not good practice, but also you lose respect and it's not a healthy dynamic with a patient if you're just willing to do whatever. Um, and so, you know, you have to really strike that balance of, of being being open minded, willing to discuss, but also firm when you know sort of what's right and what's wrong and, and make sure that you express your opinions so that people know that you kind of have something that you kind of believe in and, and, and uh, that you're willing to, to draw boundaries and, and give firm uh, recommendations. So anyway, tangential to the managing a practice, but I think it's the same skill set in a certain way to be able to read people and, and, and allow them to see that you're willing to listen to them, but not kind of just. They're both examples of leadership. So the idea of partly being a physician is that you're meant to lead me as the, the patient. Yeah, like you have to listen to me in order to be able to lead me effectively. Right. But at the end of it, you, ha- you are not the pharmacist and I am not the physician. You are the physician, I am the patient. And you have to be able to lead me. And the same is true in a business and for not just fertility practice owners and other business owners in the fertility field who listen to this show, but all of us business owners across the market, I think the last year and a half, two years have gotten unbalanced advice from, uh, yeah, it's all been about the employee. Just go on LinkedIn and see, I, I haven't seen one post on freaking LinkedIn sticking up for a business owner in two darn years. Everything is, and we deserve this too. And we also should have this and we're finally making what we're worth. It's like, really, that's what you're worth is, is right now in the most unprecedented inflated economy of all time. Like, is that house really worth a million and a half dollars? Uh, okay. But then does that mean that that's what you're worth when there's a recession or, or, or the pendulum swings the other way. And for business owners, the advice has been do whatever you can to retain, show that you care, show that, um, listen, give them what, what they're asking for. And in many cases, you do have to do that. It also has to be balanced with leadership and saying, this is where we're going and holding people accountable. And many people the last two years, many of us have been afraid to hold people accountable, have been afraid to, uh, to really you know, leverage leadership um, because it's like, well, if I lose that person, you know, we're already down three people. And, right. um, but, but it sure makes things worse uh, because then it becomes a cancer in the organization. And, uh, and then nothing you do is, is good enough when you are listening, when you are, if you don't have the other side to balance and say, this is where the organization is going and we're all accountable to it. Right. Right. Yep. I, uh, it is not easy. Um, you know, it's, uh, and it's, I think it's probably as hard as it's ever been for the reasons that you're talking about, uh, um, it, it, we all do appreciate our employees and our colleagues and, and genuinely, and they do deserve what they deserve. Um, but yes, it, it, it can get out of hand pretty quickly if, if you don't set sort of some framework for what's reasonable and, and uh, that's not an easy thing to do. So other, uh, other, than, other than like principles like that about people, just even like function, what are things about business that you knew nothing about when you started? Like, I, 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 think now good advice for most people unless they're a hundred on this on the entrepreneurial spectrum and by a hundred I mean Mark Zuckerberg I mean Elon Musk I mean that type of person but you know your average business owner might be like a 70 on that spectrum and and so I think for most people 
unless they're the, the most extreme on the entrepreneurial spectrum, are better off going to work for someone first, learning as much as they possibly can, and then starting their own business uh, if they still think that's a good idea. Um, and I say that and I believe that at the same time, though, I know things like I wouldn't have even effing known what to look for in many cases. So what are some of those things where you're like, I didn't even know to look for that before I was uh, yeah. before I managed to practice? I think I mean, in a very fundamental way, I think one of the things that has become clear to me is that so much of business relies on assumptions that are necessarily loose. Um, you know, one of the things we struggled with and as they struggled with, but, but, but that we, that we, um, learned along the way was I mentioned earlier that when we started extend, we wanted to push down the price point of egg freezing to help make it more accessible. Um, and, uh, this has been an ongoing debate that's still ongoing. You know, what's a reasonable price for, for an egg freezing cycle and, even more, it might sound crazy, but what does it cost for us to deliver an egg freezing cycle? Um, because it's not simple math. You know, there's fixed costs and there's variable costs. And so um, I think when I when I agreed to join Extend Fertility and I had some really accomplished smart business people who joined as well, and we started, you know, kind of making uh, decisions about how we're going to set things up in the framework, um, I was, I think, expecting that these business business people with their uh, MBAs, uh, Ivy League MBAs, would have some magic formula they're going to pull out of some Excel spreadsheet and they're going to just have it all figured out. And like, this is, you know, it should cost X. And as it turns out, they don't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it, at best they say, well, let's assume that this year we're going to do this number of cycles and we're, let's assume we're going to have, you know, X number of embryologists and doctors and obviously all the different things you have to put on paper. And then, yes, there is some, some smart math that you can do to sort of make a smart a smart decision and, and a smart assumption. But I think that it, it was sort of a little bit um, disturbing about how much of, of, of business is done in a way that you just have to like make thoughtful decisions based on as much available data. And often there isn't a lot of available data and kind of just try it and see what happens and, and then adjust along along the way. So I think that, you know, I, I, it definitely, I, I've learned a lot about business over the last number of years. And I, I've learned uh, to respect people enormously for their successes in business at the same time i think the uh my my perception that there's like this business secret book that like you only get if you're a business person and that doctors aren't privy to that uh i think misconception has been uh or i've been abused of that notion so you kind of just have to get comfortable with saying well this is like the, the best guess we're going to make and let's let's go with it so that's something i think that you only learn when you're on the other side and, and really see the books and 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 know um, how the, some of those decisions are made with regards to the dollars dollars and cents. Um, that's one I'd, I'd say. Another sort of uh, big learning item for me was, I think when you're on the outside and thinking about a business from a financial perspective in a relatively unsophisticated way, are you tend to think mostly about revenue and not about overhead. Um, and you say, oh, well, they're doing a thousand cycles of IVF and every cycle is, you know, they're getting 10,000 bucks. And so that's like, uh, uh, well, whatever that is, uh, $10 million of revenue. And so like, ah, oh, it's 10 million bucks. Like they must be rolling in the dough, except that you don't realize that like, 
your annual rent, if you're in Manhattan, can be uh, easily a million dollars or more. And then you've got, uh, you know, four or five million dollars of payroll for all of your people. And then you've got all of your equipment. And then you got like, et cetera, et cetera. Malpractice insurance. And yeah. Sudden, yeah. And the in insurance and not just malpractice and liability and the cyber insurance. And like, and all of a sudden, 10 million bucks is not exactly a ton of money anymore. You know, <laughs> so um, I think that the in, to the to the uninitiated, it's easy to see a business as as a revenue entity, but it's not. It's a it's a it's a PL entity. And so and there's so many more overhead items that you never dream of before you're kind of in it. Um, and so I think that's something that I would definitely caution people to think about if they haven't gotten on the other side of the curtain yet is just you got to realize that that delivering a product and certainly a high quality product and certainly a you know a high touch service highly regulated product like healthcare in America for fertility patients is a very expensive thing to deliver. And it's not so easy to cut out a lot of these major, major expenses. And so, you know, it's, for full transparency, you know, I, I kind of uh, imagined we'd be able to push price points down a lot more than, than is realistic before I knew what goes into it. And so, uh, um, you know, what we charge for our services now is more than I thought we'd, be, we'd have to charge. But the reality is it's, it's, it's very expensive to deliver good quality care or even mediocre quality care, let alone good quality care. Um, and so, uh, so don't forget the overhead. It's, 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 it's an important other. I remember the first time you did a budget. I mean, the first time we tried doing a, a budget was like, it's like, I, I don't know how much that's going to like before we launched the podcast, like, I don't know how much it is to do a podcast. Like, I don't know how much we're going to. And so it does take some, uh, like some expense tracking, which is different from budgeting that yeah. helps you that informs, but you know, it's, it's a lot easier for us to do a budget and forecasting. It's like, how the heck were we going to sales forecast in the beginning? I, I don't know. How many clients am I going to sell this year? Right. How many? Right. Um, and so that's, that's two areas that I really would recommend that if somebody's thinking about starting their own business, their own practice, and they're they're in an organization. I would tr I would try to do two things. And the first, well, maybe three. The uh, first is is see as much of the financials as you can. Some people do like we're our firm is moving towards open book management where we share that with our team. Maybe some places you can only see a piece of it. But David Sable recommended a book to me last year called How to Read a Financial Report. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's as interesting as reading New York State tax code, but it is. Uh, it it's the basics, and um, it would be great if you could do that for your own practice or even your own REI division if you're at an academic center, and to see what that is to have some education. Of that the second is to know what to know the sales and marketing pipeline. How are people coming in? That is extremely important to 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 know as deeply as as you can. And the third is the human resources pipeline. How are we getting? in retaining people. And uh, like those are three areas where I think it, it makes sense to really delve in uh, may, maybe even more than operations and delivery. I, I might even put those three areas ahead of operations and delivery uh, in terms of priority of learning. What do you think? Uh, I think you're right, because that's kind of how you get to have a team that can do the things you want to do. And if you have that, then you figure out how to do, you know, if you have the right team, you're going to do the things you want to do, the, 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 the operations and delivery, but you can't, you can't get there without sort of getting your human resources figured out without getting your sales and marketing figured out. So you have, you know, a customer um, and, and that you got your finances straight. So yeah, I think that's probably right. 
Um, and by the way, the sales and marketing piece is also another thing. Um, and I can reflect with our own experience at Extend. Um, you know, we we came into the we opened and came into the market heavy on the egg freezing. Egg freezing is more so than uh, you know infertility treatment. Um, an elective service line. Um, it has less insurance coverage than IVF does. Um, even today, you know, even with progeny and 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 carrot and and wind fertility, there's still a only a very small percentage of 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 uh, women will have coverage for fertility preservation, and only a minority percentage of our patients have coverage. Um, and we we're very aggressive with our marketing and our marketing spend early on, and we grew very fast. And so um, it was clear to us from the first couple of years of doing it that marketing works when it comes to egg freezing. The problem is that that only actually works in the long run if you can uh, spend money to get customers in a way that allows you to still have a profit margin on, on, on what you're charging for your service. Meaning if you got to spend $5,000 on, on marketing for every customer that you're going to convert, every patient that you're going to convert, um, that may not be a viable business model because you're not charging enough to, to justify it. And so, um, you know, how you're going to get your patients, the best way, of course, is when they show up, you know, uh, they, they, they uh, word of mouth, but it's free. Um, but uh, the reality of fertility in the U.S. right now, certainly in any major metropolitan area, for sure, is that there's lots of competition and, and everybody's got an angle. And most practices, even the academic practices, are doing something on the sales and marketing. And so, um, it's important to be realistic about the fact that that stuff has to be done carefully, thoughtfully, and it costs money and you have to uh, keep track of how much money you're spending and what you're getting for, the, for those dollars. And uh, once again, like maybe I was way too naive, but this isn't stuff that I thought about, you know, when figure, okay, just buy some Google ads and there's your marketing. And like, it, you know, it's a lot more complicated than that, obviously. So um, uh, that's definitely another, uh, area that, that I've learned a lot about over the last number of years. We're talking about lessons learned in owning a practice or owning a business in the fertility field and things that you may want to learn how to do or learn about before you go and start your own venture. Another thing is some of the systems that are used. I know people that can give really good recommendations on the different EMRs they've shopped and the, the depth and scope of functions. But I would ask someone that you know that uses Engaged MD. If you're not already, if you don't use Engaged MD in your system, you're thinking, I'm, I want to open my own office within my own group, or I want to open my own practice. I want to go join somebody else and I want to be able to add something to it. Engaged MD is one of the surest bets that you can do, but I, you don't take my word for it. Ask someone that you know, because more than half of your colleagues are using Engaged MD and more than half of your colleagues are extremely delighted with Engaged MD because they've got real informed consent. They don't have stacks of papers that people have to sign and then account for and then keep in a file cabinet somewhere. They have true informed consent from patients that have a module at their convenience so that the staff isn't overburdened with questions that they don't need to be getting, that they can help the patient with the attention that needs to be devoted to that patient's case because the elementary, the rudimentary is covered. And now it's just what that patient is stuck on or what's unique to their case that the care team can focus their care on. 
That's what personalized care is. And more than half of your colleagues have seen the benefit from engaged MD that way. So just reach out to any of them. Hey, guys, do you use engaged MD? The people you went to fellowship with, people that you see at ASRM. Hey, do you use engaged MD? What do you think? I hear Griff talk about it, but he doesn't own a practice. What do you guys think? And see what they say. But if you want that free workflow assessment, you want to see what other practices are doing, you want those insights that EngagedMD has, and you want to see how your practice stacks against that ideal workflow, then you go to EngagedMD.com slash Griffin, and you mentioned that you heard them on the show, you mentioned that you heard them from me, and then you're going to get that free workflow assessment. So ask somebody else, don't take my word for it, but... Go to engagedmd.com slash Griffin, or say you heard it on the show, say you heard it from me, so you can get that free work assessment for you. That's one of the biggest system wins that you could have right off the bat, and you can verify that just by asking people you already know. I hope you enjoy the rest of this episode about things you need to know for the fertility business you might start. I'm going to let you conclude on whatever topic you want to, but before that, because we have so many younger docs that listen uh, and they're thinking about like, how do I choose who I'm going to work with? You were, you, you chose your, your business partners and, um, and they chose you. Uh, And so talk about how you did that. Well, um, I'd say I was, probably luckier than I realized. The main person, the main business person that I that I partnered with um, is a, a wonderful guy named Michael Kahn, who is a, a private equity hedge fund guy. Um, the truth is, looking back, I got lucky that he is of as high integrity as he is, because I probably could have gotten really uh, treated much more poorly or gotten abused more if I wasn't so lucky to find someone. So I think that uh, the advice would be you definitely have to choose who you get into bed with very, very carefully, especially when it comes to business people, because um, I think that they're not all going to be the most high integrity people. Um, and to be fair, like business people are, their profession is to use business to make money. And that's true for doctors too, obviously, it's our profession, it's how we pay our bills and, 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 and make a living. But I think the mindset of young doctors is a little bit more uh, idealistic than uh, the mindset of probably mid-career business people is. Um, and you got to be very careful not to be uh, too trusting or too idealistic in that, in that sense. Um, you know, for young docs who are coming out and looking at, at job opportunities. So it's, it's complicated because I think that, you know, the people that you're going to work with day to day are the clinical team. You're going to have obviously doctor colleagues, um, and then other clinical colleagues and embryology co- colleagues and so forth. And But these days, a lot of practices are either owned or part-owned or managed by business entities that you may or may not have much direct interaction with. Um, and it's it's a very, very scene. I think that um, the, the level of involvement and exposure to the business behind the practice is going to be very different from one place to another. And I think that that's, those are important questions to try to uh, really investigate while you're looking at different practice opportunities. Um, you know, it, it, there, there are going to be places that uh, are looking at the conversion metrics, you know, how many consults did you do and how many of those turned into IVF patients. And if, if you're below a certain bar, you're either going to get dinged or you're not going to get your bonus. And, um, you know, to some degree, that's not 
crazy. But if that's going to bother you, like you better, you should be aware of it. And um, and other places, certainly in, in more academic environments, um, the culture may be more sleepy, but uh, but that might be more comfortable uh, to not have to sort of think about numbers like that. And so um, I think that uh, I'm not sure that I have much brilliant insight other than to say it's a very varied playing field out there. And so um, it, it, you really want to ask as many questions as you can and talk to as many people as you can looking at to what degree is that practice run like a business or like a medical practice that has a business behind it um, because the culture of the place and look business is not terrible and um, there are some very successful very busy places out there that run like a business and and uh, that patients are happy and the doctors are happy and you know that's not necessarily always the worst thing but I think different doctors have very different priorities of how they want to practice medicine and what kind of lifestyle they're looking for. And it's going to be pretty different from one practice environment to another. And so just just do as much investigation and homework as you can, uh, because it is going to be very different uh, from one opportunity to another. So that's for the homework. Let's conclude with the introspection and think about, because a lot of people listening are in the position of the 2012 Josh or Jane Klein. And maybe there's a couple different routes for that type of person, but some of them should stay at Columbia or wherever their academic center is, wherever they're doing fellowship, because they're going to be happy there or, or at, uh, at another one. Some of them should go on to be, uh, should should just gobble and gobble and gobble until they're a bigger fish in the bigger pond that they end up with at you know, someplace like an RMA or, or an RMA or, or wherever uh, they end up. Some should go off on their own. And then there's other people still that it's like, oh, there's somebody that just started their own thing a couple years ago. Uh, I don't totally want to start my own thing. That I don't feel like starting from zero, but there's also a lot of opportunity for me to help make this bigger. I want to go join the Josh Kleins out there. So there's a couple different options introspectively. And then this will this will be your final thought for the program. What how how should people decide what's best for them? Uh that's a great question. I think that you can't have everything. I think that uh, it's important to be realistic about the fact that if you're someone who um, is going to prioritize, you know, uh, maximizing income, then you're probably not going to get that at a pure academic program because uh, you're going to be salaried, and and usually that's not the culture. Um, if you're someone who enjoys teaching, who enjoys uh, uh, having some uh, abstracts at ASRM every year, going to conferences, um, then you're going to get that at a, at a more academic program. It's going to be much harder. You're going to be sort of swimming upstream at, at, a, at a pure private practice. Um, if you're someone who has, you know, family or hobbies or, or outside interests that are very important to them, that that you know, you want to be out of the office by 5 p.m. every every evening and not work weekends, you know, that that's going to be something that you want to take into account. And I think. The bottom line is that there's no job, probably, that's going to let you be like the division chief and uh, academically active, going to conferences every couple of months and, you know, making a seven-figure income and uh, not working weekends and being out of the office by 5 p.m. every month and every week, every day. So, um, so I think it's just a matter of, and again, no brilliant insight here, but you really just have to think about what are the things that are most important to you and your lifestyle and, and money is important, but it really is not necessarily the most important. Um, and so 
you know, make your list and and then try to get as many of those things as as you can because you're you're just it's like buying a house. You're just not going to get everything unless unless something's you know. You're I guess they're on an unlimited budget, but most people are going to have to pick and choose. And so just think seriously about what's going to make you happy in five years and ten years, and and then chase after those things. And maybe some of it will come along with it. You know, you can be in a private practice and still be the research person who who does uh, uh, put together some research abstracts every year, and like that's fantastic. Um, but as long as you, you know, are comfortable with the fact that that's kind of, if you can, you'll do it, but it may not happen, um, then you're, you're being being smart. So I think it's it's really a matter of triaging what what is going to be highest priority for you in your career and, and um, you know, being honest with yourself about what's going to make you happy. And, and, and if you do that, you should be landing in a good place. And there's lots of good places. That's another comment is that there's not like one right job. I think there's a lot of ways to be happy. So we're in a good time. There's a lot of good going on. Well, if if one of those routes makes sense to to talk to you, as you say, talk to everybody. Uh, is is that an offer you would extend? Totally an in, offer. Uh, see what I did there that you would extend to I, the 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 younger docs. They can reach out to you on LinkedIn. Yeah, if so, I, I we think, will include that in the I show definitely notes. do. I think I, my journey's been an interesting one and not the most common. You know, working at a big place, academic place, and then in New York, kind of co-founding my own place and. It's, it's been a journey and it's been a learning journey. And so I, I do think that I can can give people guidance or at least my my personal you know perspective. So I'd be happy to be available. Dr. Josh Klein, thank you for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.